Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. In about a year, if all goes according to plan, NASA will launch one of the most anticipated missions to the outer solar system. It's called Europa Clipper, and it'll be the first mission dedicated solely to the exploration from orbit of the icy moon of Jupiter that has a subsurface ocean containing more water than Earth. If there's one place in the solar system most likely to harbor life forms, it is Europa. In this show, we'll take a deep dive into previewing the mission. Later on in the show, we'll talk to a member of the Europa Clipper engineering team, David Levine, about the spacecraft's sophisticated instrumentation and track its assembly at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. And we'll have a very special visit with the Poet Laureate of the United States, Ada Limon, who wrote a beautiful poem inspired by the mission that will be on board the spacecraft. But first, let's get into the scientific reasons why we want to explore Europa with Jennifer Scully. Jennifer is a planetary scientist particularly interested in the icy worlds of the solar system and a member of the Europa Clipper science team. She joins us now from JPL in Pasadena. Jennifer Scully, welcome to Blue Dot. Thank you very much. So I'm very excited about this mission, and I'm sure you are too. Um, what I'd like to know first is, like, how, how did you first get involved in working on science for Europa Clipper? So I joined and started working with the Europa Clipper team back in early 2020, which was an interesting time to join a team because I met everybody and then we immediately went virtual for a couple of years. I got involved because I had done my PhD and postdoc and early career work actually looking at Ceres, which is a dwarf planet, so the same kind of category of body as Pluto um, that's in the asteroid belt. And one of the things I'd been doing for Ceres was looking at reconnaissance for finding future landing sites because that's a future mission that um, we think we might want to do. Um, And that was very kind of complementary to something that the Europe Clipper team and mission concept teams were doing at the time to think about um, gathering reconnaissance data to use for future landings on Europa. So I got involved because of that expertise that I had um, in doing reconnaissance for future landers. Very cool. Well, let's talk about why we should be excited about this mission. Uh, Why Europa? It's been called an ocean world and uh, put it another way, it's it's one of the most interesting places in the solar system. I would say if I was going to lay down money, like if there's one place in the solar system besides Earth uh, where I think there may be life, I would bet on Europa, and I'm, I'm not alone in that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about why is Europa so special? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good bet. Um, I think that's a pretty pretty good bet on your part. Um, so why we really care about Europa, like you said, is because um, we're pretty sure it's an ocean world. Um, so it has this likely um, global subsurface ocean. So it's an important distinction in comparison to oceans on the Earth, where the water is floating on the surface and it's in contact with the atmosphere. Um, on Europa, it's a different setup because you have this global subsurface ocean that's underneath a very thick um, ice shelf. Well, maybe not very thick. It's probably something like uh, tens of kilometers thick. Um, but that keeps the global subsurface ocean um, away from the vacuum of space, which it would other be in con- otherwise be in contact with at the surface of Europa. So it means that the um, liquid water ocean can exist without just being lost out into space. 
um, and that ocean um, that we're pretty sure is on Europa is a very exciting place to think about because we think it probably has salts and organics and it has water obviously these are all very important um, ingredients for potential life um, and then also uh, probably chemical energy it's possible that you could have energy sources from um, like hydrothermal vents on the sea floor somewhat like we have on the earth we don't have um, definitive proof of that yet but we've got some um, pretty pretty interesting uh, indications to think about and then you also get energy coming down on Europa's surface from um, outer space as well so we basically have water these essential elements that you need for life chemical energy and also stability which is really important for life because similar to when you're cooking a meal or baking a cake or something you want it to simmer for quite a long while and so Europa has probably been around for billions of years which has allowed anything that might be there to get that simmering time well, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about why we think there's an ocean on Europa. Why is it that we think that they, there can be these conditions where a liquid ocean can exist there? Yeah, definitely. So there are four what are called Galilean moons of Jupiter because they were discovered by um, Galileo in the 1600s. And um, they're Callisto, Ganymede, Europa, and Io getting increasingly closer to Jupiter. So those four moons are orbiting around Jupiter, um, but they don't orbit around Jupiter in perfect circles. So sometimes they're a little bit closer, sometimes they're a little bit further away. And because Jupiter is a truly massive planet, that means that the um, gravity of Jupiter is tugging on those moons as they orbit around all the time. And so that um, causes a lot of kind of push and pull on the on those moons. And then depending on how close a moon is to Jupiter, that push or pull is going to be more intense. Um, so Io, which is the closest of the moons, is actually a world that's just full of volcanoes. I think of it as a really nice example of what I call like a Star Wars kind of planet. Because um, if you think about the types of worlds they tend to have in sci-fi, they tend to be a world that has one characteristic for the whole place. And so Io is a really nice real life example of that because it's a world that's just all volcanoes because it's so close to Jupiter and that push and pull is really, really strong. Europa is next out. Um, so it still gets a lot of energy from that pushing and pulling from um, orbiting around Jupiter, but it's not quite so strong. Um, so no volcanoes on Europa, but there is enough energy to maintain this um, subsurface ocean over the length of uh, the solar system, essentially. And then as you go further out with Ganymede and Callisto, those worlds get um, kind of less dynamic, I guess, in this case, because they're further away. So you get um, less of that tidal forcing, which is what it's called, uh, kind of flexing those bodies. And um, there's just less energy being put into them. Yeah, it's interesting when you think about it, the, the analogy of the Goldilocks planet like Earth, where we're, you know, not too close to the sun and not too far away. It's just right. Mm -hmm. um, and we always thought of like if there are, are worlds going around other stars, they need to be in that Goldilocks zone, that habitable zone where water can exist as a liquid possibly. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that Europa is kind of in this Goldilocks zone from tidal forces, from gravitation, from Jupiter. It's kind of like if you took a tennis ball and you just squeezed it and squeezed it and squeezed it and released it, after a while you'll feel the tennis balls getting warm on the inside because that's essentially kind of what's happening out there on Europa. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, another interesting thing that we've learned, you know, fairly recently in the last few years 
is that we know that out on the satellite of, of Saturn, Enceladus, there are these incredible geyser plumes coming off of its subsurface liquid ocean. And we think the same thing might be going on at Europa, right? Yeah, so it is possible that there are plumes coming off Europa. We have um, evidence of that from telescopic observations. It hasn't been seen by any spacecraft that have visited Europa yet, but we have seen it in telescopes. So that's something that the Europa Clipper mission is particularly excited about. We have a group of scientists and engineers on the mission uh, that are particularly thinking about the potential for those plumes and how you would observe them and uh, the possibility of flying through them. That's like really exciting from a scientific point of view, but then you want to make sure that that's not going to damage your spacecraft. And um, so kind of weighing up all of those um, things that you can do. It's unlikely. Um, I think that the plumes would damage the spacecraft, um, but you just want to think that through to be sure. Um, but the scientific information that you could get by trying to fly through something like that is really intriguing to think about. Um, we have two different kind of types of instruments on the spacecraft. Um, there's ones that are the remote sensing instruments. So that's like the camera or um, looking at different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. And then you have the other sets of instruments which actually take in particles and then tell you about the composition. So imagining flying some of those instruments where you can actually sample particles through the plume is a really fascinating and exciting thing to think about. Do we have any indications that there may be signatures of organic compounds on Europa? Do we, have we detected anything like that yet? Yeah, so there's ideas that there probably are some kinds of organics um, on Europa. We don't have a great constraint um, on the specific types of compositions that are there, but we're pretty sure different types of organics, different types of salts, um, but really trying to pin down those specific compositions is something that Clipper um, is aiming to do, which is really, really exciting because um, all of the different models for how Europa formed and how habitable it could be or could not be are kind of based on the details of that chemistry. Because just having organics doesn't mean that you could have um, precursors to life. There's a whole different swathe of organics. Um, and so it's really important to have the, to know the specific types of organics that are there. Um, so uh, Clipper is going to be able to get a really great picture of what the specific composition of these materials is, which is going to tell us a lot about the potential habitability of this moon. And the amount of water that we believe is on Europa, as, as I understand it, is more than the liquid water on the surface of the Earth. Is that right? Yeah, it, it's about twice all of Earth's water. Um, so if you think wow. about it, all the oceans, all the glaciers, everything that we have on Earth, um, Europa has twice as much as the Earth. And Europa itself is actually uh, just slightly smaller than the Earth's moon. So it's really a lot of water. And if you think about the fact that water is one of the main ingredients that you need for life, not the only one, but it is an important one, uh, this makes it a particularly intriguing place to, to want to go to. Yeah, it's like all of the ingredients are there. You have uh, an energy source from that, those tidal forces you talked about earlier. You mm -hmm. have all that liquid water. You've also got the protection that that ice crust provides to keep, you know, because it's a very high radiation environment out there at Jupiter. And mm -hmm. then hopefully the, the presence of those organic molecules. You've, you've got all the ingredients there, which is what makes this place so intriguing. Um, do you ever like just, you know, as a human being and, as, and a scientist, ever kind of, you know, let your imagination go wild a little bit and think about what could be 
under that ice crust? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, we definitely uh, imagine the kinds of things that you could maybe have down there. Um, specifically for me as a geologist, I'm even just fascinated thinking about what the surface could be like because we're going to get these really, really high resolution views of um, the surface from Europa Clipper. It's going to be about a meter per pixel images or something like that in the most high resolution areas. So that's going to give you a really great idea of what that surface looks like. Because um, at the moment from previous spacecraft that have gone to um, Europa, especially the Galileo mission, we know that there's all these linear features across the surface. So like fractures and faults that come from cracking the ice shell because of those tidal forces. And then we have these chaos regions, which are really very aptly named. They're just these completely chaotic, blocky sorts of regions. We have some, but not very many impact craters. We have all these like really fascinating features that we can see on the surface and being able to see them in much greater resolution and at different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum is going to be really important from Clipper because those are some of the places where you could maybe connect down by various mechanisms into that subsurface ocean. And that exchange between the surface and the subsurface is really important not only for us understanding what could be down in that subsurface ocean, but it's also integral to this idea of how it could be habitable because you need exchange between the surface materials and the subsurface materials. And um, so while it's fascinating to think about what could be in that subsurface ocean, I'm just also really fascinated and really excited to see what the surface looks like in greater detail. What are some of the things that really intrigue you about those surface structures as a geologist? What, what really catches your eye and makes you wonder? Oh, there's so much. Um, Europa is really a paradise of geology. Um, there's no like trees or vegetation or anything in the way. It's just this icy surface that's so cold that it's kind of behaving like a rock. Um, so you have all these fractures and these faults that crisscross each other in multiple generations. Um, and it's often incredibly difficult to try and disentangle what came first and what came next and what happened after. Um, because the surface has been so broken up and fractured over millions and millions of years and of this push and pull of orbiting around your, um, Jupiter. So it's this incredibly tricky surface to try and map and try and disentangle. Um, but that's also what makes it fun. So um, trying to understand more about that, I think, will keep us very busy for decades to come once we get the Clipper data. And you mentioned something that I think I is important here about impact craters. Mm -hmm. that there are very few um, mm -hmm. as as a planetary scientist as a geologist what does that tell you about the surface of a world like that yeah so one of the things that i actually mostly focus on in my research is impact crater or our impact craters on europa and there's way fewer than you would expect on a body of this size. And that tells us that the surface is probably very young. One of the main ways that we date surfaces in the solar system is counting the numbers of craters um, on the surface. Because um, if you've been orbiting around in space for billions and millions of years, other things are going to impact you over time. And so um, the longer that you've been out there in space as a surface, the more craters will have accumulated over time. So it tells us that Europa's surface is very young, um, maybe only 60 million years or something. And that's a rough estimate, but something like that, tens of millions of years. Um, which seems long in comparison to a human lifespan, um, but on a geologic or 
kind of solar system timescale of billions and billions of years. That's actually very young. Um, so it's intriguing to think about how Europa itself as a body is probably pretty old, billions of years old. Um, but the surface is very, very young, probably to do with all of those tidal forces and the fact that there's all this energy in the system as it orbits around Jupiter and kind of breaking up the crust and remaking it um, over time. So that's something that's pretty cool about Europa as well. Okay. Can you kind of just give us an overview of, like, if you look at a, like, for example, a picture in an Earth science book, you see, you know, the Earth's got the inner core, uh, and then the outer core, and then the mantle, and then the, the, the crustal surface, the where the, the crustal plates are. Can you kind of give us that kind of a cross-sectional view of what we think is going on with Europa based on our best understanding now? Yes. So, Europa's interior is... Um somewhat similar to that cross-section of the Earth that you just gave. We think that there is probably a metallic core. Then a lot of the interior is actually rock. So we have been emphasizing how much water there is on this moon, but it's actually very rocky. The, um, the biggest chunk, I guess, of the interior is probably actually rock. Then on top of that, again, you have this um, subsurface liquid water ocean. And then on top of that, you have the icy crust. And we think that the icy crust and the ocean combined together, you can call it like a hydrosphere. And we think that's probably 100 kilometers thick or so. And then the crust is probably tens of kilometers thick of that. Um, but that's something that Europa Clipper is going to be able to define um, in more detail, which we are very excited about because the thickness of the crust has a lot of implications for those transport processes that I was talking about earlier from the surface down to the ocean through the crust. Um, so whether it's thicker or thinner is very important for that process. So we're intrigued to find that out with Clipper. And um, of all the instrumentation and things going on with, with Europa Clipper, it's a very powerful uh, spacecraft in terms of the, the science it can do. And it's, it's a large spacecraft. Um, what are some of the instruments you're most interested in seeing the data coming from? So as a geologist, I'm definitely most excited about the imaging data that we're going to get. Um, there is an instrument called ICE, E-I-S, Europa Imaging System, and that has two cameras on it. There's a narrow angle camera and a wide angle camera. So the narrow angle camera is going to give you very high spatial resolution images, but over um, kind of a postage stamp, a small segment of the surface. And then the wide angle camera is going to give you slightly less high, a moderate kind of spatial resolution over a broader part of the surface. So when you combine those two things together, you get this really great idea of what the surface looks like. And you can also make um, terrain models from that, so you can get an idea of the topography as well. So that's the, the stuff that I'm most excited about, I think, um, because that's what I use as my bread and butter for doing a geological and geomorphic analysis of a surface of a body. Um, but then all the instruments working together is really the very exciting part of Clipper. Um, there's nine different instruments and then a gravity investigation, so 10 um, investigations. And the team really has this philosophy of the instruments are kind of tools to get at the science, but you really only get the full picture of the science when you use all of the instruments. So it's using that camera data that I was talking about in conjunction with the compositional data, in conjunction with the radar data, 
in conjunction with the gravity data, the magnetometer data. It's when you combine all of that together that you get a much fuller picture of what's going on on the moon. And so the team has been working really, really hard um, on plans to get all of those instruments getting both the best data for each individual instrument, but even more getting the best data overall to get this picture of um, the entire body that you can get from using all of them. Yeah, it's almost like an orchestra. You know, one one instrument mm -hmm. sounds pretty cool, but when you put them all together, you get the richness of sound, and in this case, the richness of data that you're going to be harvesting. Mm -hmm. uh, this mission is going to be one that uh, a lot of us that are fans of of space exploration and the search for life beyond Earth, and just the mysteries of the solar system, are going to be just really, really totally dedicated to, to following. So thanks for sharing your expertise with us to get us a little preview of what's to come. My pleasure. That was really fun. Thanks to our guest, Jennifer Scully, planetary scientist from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our preview of the Europa Clipper mission set to launch in the fall of 2024. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. Now let's turn our attention to the engineering aspects of sending a spacecraft to explore Jupiter's icy moon Europa. For this, we brought in David Levine. He's a member of the Europa Clipper engineering team and joins us now from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. David Levine, welcome to Blue Dot. Yeah, thank you for having me. Okay, let's, let's start out by uh, answering the question everybody really wants to know. When does it launch? So right now we're tracking against October uh, 2024, and by all accounts right now, we are going to hit that first day of the window. Very cool. And uh, what kind of launch vehicle are we using for this? So we're going to be going with uh, the SpaceX uh, Falcon Heavy um, out of the historic 39A launch site over in Cape Canaveral. Wow, like where the Apollo missions took off for the moon, and that is an impressive rocket. It is a very impressive rocket, and uh, yeah, we're we're looking forward to getting uh, this spacecraft off the ground. Yeah, and one of the cool things that I've been able to do over the last years, I've been watching the assembly of Europa Clipper. Tell us about how you know people can check that out. Sure. Yeah. So if uh, if you hop online and do a search for Europa Clipper live stream uh, JPL, uh, you'll you'll get a hit, and uh, there's. Uh, a feed where you can watch us work from basically 7 30 8 o'clock in the morning until uh 11 12 o'clock at night assembling the spacecraft and we still have a couple more major integrations left before we start testing the the vehicle but uh yeah that is a good way to just kind of keep tabs on on what we got going in the clean room very cool and uh it, i'm always interested in any of uh, nasa's missions into deep space especially but but any of their missions but this one in particular has me very excited uh this is one of the most interesting missions to launch to me because of the scientific payoff that it could come with it uh in a very long time so i want to talk about this spacecraft uh, give us a sense of how big it is so overall the the spacecraft is around 16 feet tall um 12 feet wide and then also uh, nine feet in, in the third direction. But that doesn't tell the full, the full story. When the solar arrays get deployed, um, 
the spacecraft from from tip to tip will be over 100 feet long. And so these are just truly huge solar arrays that are needed to just collect enough energy for us to do our science out at Europa. So I saw an analogy that's the, the whole thing's about the size of a basketball court. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that's that's a big spacecraft. It's it's huge. And, you know, you need you need huge facilities to to be able to process that and large uh, GSE or ground support equipment to be able to manipulate the solar arrays. And yeah, it's quite the endeavor for us to build this uh, the spacecraft. As you mentioned, it's using solar power, solar panels. And uh, the reason they have to be so big is because this is going to be operating out at Jupiter where you don't have as much sunlight. Right, exactly. I think it's something like uh, we're, we're five times away, further away from Earth. So the solar energy there is is much diminished. And so you have to have this huge surface area to be able to, to gather enough light to generate uh, enough energy to power the spacecraft. Let's talk about some of the interesting aspects of this spacecraft. What's the propulsion system? It's what is it using for to make it go? So it is a, a biprop system. Um, it's a uh, Mon three uh, NTO uh, combination, and uh, you know, talk about the spacecraft a little bit more. There, there's something we call the propulsion module, and that's comprised of these two very large tanks uh, that contain the propellants. And then there's also a pressurized gas system to backfill these large tanks as the propellant gets drawn down. And so they'll get fed into the propulsion system, which has various sets of valves uh, for both safety and just redundancy. And, um, you know, we're screaming out of Earth's orbit heading towards Jupiter, and then we need to slow down to be able to get into Jupiter's orbit. And so that's when we start firing the propulsion system to slow us down to enough to be able to, to actually get into orbit there. Yeah, and when you get out to Jupiter, um, you've got kind of uh, some problems to deal with for the spacecraft because it's a, it's a high-energy environment with a lot of radiation, very powerful magnetic field out there. It's a kind of a nasty place in space, and yet at the same time, it's very cold. So what are some of the ways that the spacecraft is protected and the instruments and things like that? Sure, yeah. So um, first off, right, it is a high-radiation environment. Um, you can have, if you have like an item that's just a, isolated electrically from other items, it can charge up and then it could create a spark and you don't want to have those types of electrical discharges happening uh, as we're, we're trying to have a long mission. Uh, uh, those types of events can destroy electronics. And so um, what we've done in, in the design of the spacecraft um, is, is We've shielded um, all of our sensitive electronics into something what we call the vault. And the, the vault sits on top of the propulsion module. And um, it, it's this large aluminum structure that provides uh, a safe haven for all the electronics from the radiation environment. Um, and so that's for, for the items that are actually inside the vault, uh, have that that uh, protection. Now, there's going to be harnessing that runs out to all the instruments, and it's providing power to the instruments and getting data back. And 
every single one of those harnesses is then wrapped in copper tape to also provide this electrical, electrically conductive shield uh, to be able to make sure that we don't have any arcing uh, in the harnessing uh, as, as we get exposed to the radiation. So those are kind of the, the two big ways that we're trying to mitigate radiation exposure. Now, all the instruments uh, live outside of the vault. And so what we have to do is we have harnessing that provides power to these instruments and also gain telemetry back from the instruments. And so every single harness that, that we have on the spacecraft that's exterior to the vault is also wrapped in this uh, heavy-duty copper shielding that provides a conductive path so we don't have any arcing, um, any type of sparks or arcing that, that would be generated due to uh, the discharge can have negative impacts on electronics. It can it can fry electronics and make it so that we're not getting the science that we intend to. So those are some of the, the big steps that we take towards uh, surviving the radiation uh, out in Jupiter. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of those scientific instruments because that's the main purpose for sending the spacecraft out to Europa. First, what about tell us about the cameras, the imaging systems. Sure. Yeah. So uh, we have what we call uh, WAC and NAC, uh, one being the wide angle camera and the other being the narrow angle camera. And all of our instruments, not all of them, but a good portion of the instruments are mounted onto something we call the nadir deck. And that nadir deck is really pointing at Jupiter as we're as we're uh, doing our flyby. And so WAC, uh, the wide angle camera, it just we'll deploy the uh, cover on it and we'll get uh, we'll be able to take good images as we pass by. Now with the narrow angle camera, NAC, it's actually has a gimbling uh, structure on it. And so uh, as we're flying over, we can actually gimbal where that instrument is pointed towards and uh, grab different images uh, of uh, specific interest in areas that uh, that the a wide-angle camera won't be able to to provide. Um, and then there are like radar and, and gravity experiments on board, right? Right, absolutely. And so, you know, one of the interesting items is reason, um, and that's actually attached to uh, some of the leading edges of the solar arrays. And so uh, we have these antennas. Um, so the, the solar arrays will get deployed uh, once we get into orbit. And then on top of that, there'll, there'll be another deployment of these reason antennas that are used for radio science uh, once we're out in Jupiter. And then what about like measuring magnetic fields and things like that, particles? Right. So there's what we call ECM or the Europa Clipper Magnetometer. And that's a very large boom. Um, so it gets kind of stowed in... in a fairly small volume, kind of the size of a office garbage can, we'll call it. And when it's deployed, I think it's a 10 meter uh, deployable structure and it has three different magnetometers on there, what we call flux gate sensors. And so that's also in another deployment once we're in orbit and uh, very impressive structure uh, for us to be able to measure the magnetic fields um, as we go through Europa. And then, of course, one of the thoughts is that Europa has plumes of material coming out, which could be bringing, you know, material from the interior out into space, and then the spacecraft can kind of, in a sense, smell them, sample them. Uh, are there chemical analysis experiments on board, too? Right. So we do have SETA 
which has that capability and the idea, right, is to to capture some of that uh, material as we do our close flybys of Europa. And then I believe mass specs also has that same capability, uh, another instrument to be able to kind of smell the atmosphere as we fly through it. And as an engineer working on a big spacecraft like this, you know, you're you're one part of a very large team. Can you give us a sense of you know how big the team is of people working on Europa Clipper? Sure. So, you know, within the ATLO organization, um, I've got a counterpart that does uh, systems and electrical engineering and, and systems is really like commanding the computers, uh, running various test scripts. And uh, they've got around uh, 20, 25 people on that team, um, on the mechanical team that's responsible for doing the assembly work. We've got around 10 engineers, uh, 12 technicians. Um, and then while we're actually doing the integration work, we have a slew of other support organizations like Quality Assurance. There's another 10 folks that do Quality Assurance. Planetary Protection, there's another five or so. Contaminate, contamination Control, there's another five or so there. Then there's safety. And so, you know, when, it, when it's all said and done, uh, we're, we're somewhere around a team of 50 uh, that is doing the integration work and testing the, the spacecraft. Now, that doesn't include the hundreds of other people uh, across various organizations, even across the world, that have been providing at-low hardware. There's plenty of institutions, uh, colleges, or other uh, research centers that have provided hardware to JPL for integration. Uh, and then even the solar arrays, they're being manufactured out in Airbus uh, in Europe. So, you know, definitely a, a multinational team uh, and effort to be able to build this spacecraft. And when you work at a place like Jet, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is is such a unique place. I can't think of very many other places, anything like it, uh, where you get to to build the hardware to go explore the solar system. That's pretty awesome. Um, what do you most love about your work there? You know, for, first and foremost, it's the team. We've got great folks to work with here. And, and you know, it's just we've got smart individuals, uh, people that are dedicated, willing to work hard to be able to achieve these very difficult missions. The type of people that are that, that have that big of a rigorous process, they're, you know, that they're great people to work with, very intelligent. And so really the my, my favorite part of working here is just with with my coworkers. Right behind that is that, you know, I don't have to work on the same thing twice. Uh, every mission is unique, has its own constraints. Uh, this mission, right, the, the big thing is uh, dealing with the, the radiation environment um, on other projects like the Mars 2020 rover. Uh, big thing was contamination control for the for the sample tubes. And so every single mission coming through here has new challenges, new things to learn about and just kind of grow your skill set. When you mentioned planetary protection and, and there is the distinct possibility that Europa harbors life mm -hmm. and uh, many, many, many scientists around the world and for many years have felt like if there's one place in the solar system where you could kind of stake a bet that, there may, that there's life there, Europa is probably your best bet. Um, when the spacecraft's mission is over, uh, is it going to like be basically like sent into Jupiter to destroy it so it can't, you know, somehow contaminate Europa? How will the mission actually end? 
that's that's my understanding is that it will do a nosedive and and burn up uh, into the atmosphere of Jupiter, and uh, that that would be the goal. Uh, we do take uh, planetary protection very seriously. There's a team of individuals that help us on the floor, ensuring that uh, we're not contaminating the hardware, and we wear our bunny suits and tape our gloves and, and just take lots of precautions to make sure that we're not contaminating the hardware uh, in the event that, uh, let's say, an accident happens and we end up crashing into Europa, uh, that that we also understand what what bio burden we actually have on the spacecraft uh, as it as it enters that atmosphere. Yeah, because we don't want, you know, I, giant tentacles coming out of one of those big cracks and dragging the spacecraft into the ocean below. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and um, fi finally, there's also, you know, like with Voyager spacecraft, there was the golden records. There's a message in a bottle aspect to this spacecraft too, isn't there? That's right. So uh, we do have a poem uh, that was written by a, uh, a laureate to talk about water and uh, the similarity to the water that we have here on Earth. And so that's on one side of, of this panel that gets mounted onto the vault. On the opposite side, there will be a, a silicon chip. And I think early next year, uh, there'll be a website that opens up where people can submit their name after you put your name into the system, uh, ultimately a, uh, a silicon wafer will get uh, inscribed with everybody's name and that will get bonded onto the backside of this plate and attached to the spacecraft for uh, heading over to Europa. Yeah, and so you can just go to the JPL website and do that and send your name to Europa. My name's on its way. Very nice. I hope, I hope, <laughs> I hope, I hope you get my name in there. Well, David Levine, it's been really cool to talk to you about this incredible mission, Europa Clipper. Best of luck with it, and we'll look forward to launch in about a year. All right. Well, thank you very much, and uh, yeah, appreciate being here. Thanks to David Levine from Europa Clipper's engineering team at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. We're going to take a brief break, but stay with us, because when we come back, we'll talk to the Poet Laureate of the United States, Ada Limon, about her very special role on the mission to Europa. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dive. In praise of mystery, a poem for Europa. Arching under the night sky, inky with black expansiveness, we point to the planets we know. We pin quick wishes on stars. From Earth, we read the sky as if it is an unerring book of the universe, expert and evident. Still, there are mysteries below our sky. The whale song, the songbird singing its call in the bough of a wind-shaken tree. We are creatures of constant awe, curious at beauty, at leaf and blossom, at grief and pleasure, sun and shadow. And it is not darkness that unites us, not the cold distance of space, but the offering of water, each 
drop of rain, each rivulet, each pulse, each vein. Oh, second moon, we too are made of water, of vast and beckoning seas. We too are made of wonders, of great and ordinary loves, of small, invisible worlds, of a need to call out through the dark. That was the Poet Laureate of the United States, Ada Limon, reading her poem In Praise of Mystery, a poem for Europa. And it's an honor to have her join us now. Ada Limon, welcome to Blue Dot. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'd like to first start out, you're from our part of the world. You're from Sonoma, aren't you? I am, yes, from Sonoma, California. Cool, very cool. And uh, very interested to find out... um, how do you find out you're the poet laureate? How do they let you know? You know, it's a it's a fascinating process, and I knew very little about it until I was actually asked to be the poet laureate. Um, but you are selected by Dr. Carla Hayden, the Librarian of Congress. It's not something you apply for. It's not something you know is coming. And my dear friend and representative and collaborator, Vaughn Fielder, said you're going to need to be on a Zoom. Uh, you know, I think it was a Wednesday at 10 a.m. or something like that. And I said, well, you know, I have physical therapy that day, so I'm not sure if I can do that Zoom. And she said, no, you're going to want to do this Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and then um, because she is a beloved human, told me to maybe do my hair and makeup. And um, I did so. I followed her directions. I had no idea what it was about. And when I logged on to the Zoom, Um, It was a bunch of colleagues from the Library of Congress, um, and in the center was the Librarian of Congress, Dr. Carla Hayden, who invited me to be the 24th Poet Laureate of the United States. How exciting. That's wonderful. Okay, let's talk about this incredible poem you wrote, In Praise of Mystery, a Poem for Europa. How did you get an approach to write that? You know, it was so interesting, and I'm sure that you know how this feels, where sometimes one door closes or you shut it for you know certain purposes and in this case i had said no to a larger institution about creating an original poem for something and it just didn't feel right it didn't sit right with me and so i had said no and then of course i felt bad about saying no as we all do i'm learning to accept no's as i you know <laughs> grow into this role as i grow as a writer all of those things um but I, when I said no, I started to feel, oh, I just, I don't know, did I make the right decision? And then about a month later, right after that big no, I got this um, incredible ask from NASA. NASA wrote to the Library of Congress, hoping to get in touch with me and asked if I would be willing to write a poem that would be engraved on the Europa Clipper, which is the spacecraft that will launch in October um, 2024, um, that will orbit the second moon of Jupiter, Europa. Europa is a moon that is icy and is made primarily of water. And, um, so they believe it has all of the ingredients for life. And they were looking for a, a message that would go on the spacecraft. And, um, I have been so honored that my poem is that message. It's a really cool poem. Um, 
I'm interested in the process because I spent some time with uh, a couple of poet laureates from Texas mm. who were doing some work on the national parks. Oh, yes. I just, I love that book, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm in that book. Uh, it's an amazing book. It, it's really interesting when you, you go with them and to watch their process because they're constantly observing and note-taking and talking. And you can just see this process of observation going on to collect data in a way. Um, that they will, you know, eventually distill into a poem. So I'm just wondering, what was the process like for you to create this poem? Yeah, yeah. Unlike um, writing something in nature or at a national park, um, <laughs> I couldn't visit Europa to get some idea of what to write about. But of course, they did give me some initial um you know, groundwork for the poem. And one of the things that really moved me, and it was actually a poem that that stayed, it was a, it was a line that stayed in the poem, was they kept talking about the importance of water. And, you know, I think about water as elemental and essential to us as human beings, to our planet, you know, who gets water, water rights, all of these things that are so important to us um, globally. And, then the line that came into my head as we were speaking was, we too are made of water. And I kept thinking about, you know, the human body, animals made of water. And that was where uh, I sort of discovered what might be the core of the poem. And then the other part was that I was um, given the gift of visiting um, the W.S. Merwin Conservancy, which is uh, W.S. Merwin's home that has now been turned into a writer's retreat on the island of Maui in near the town Haiku. And it was there that I was sort of tasked with writing the poem. And uh, the house is built in this incredible way. It makes it feel like a tree house. And Merwin has planted all of these unique palm trees. And it's really become this extraordinary palm forest and it's a repository for different kinds of palms from around the world. And so here I was in this incredibly earthbound, vibrant, alive locale and imagining what it would be to be hurtling towards Europa so far away in the expanse of space. And I realized that as much as the message was about exploration and discovery, it was also about attention and wonder at this beautiful planet we call Earth. Exactly. And uh, one of the things that I've learned over the years talking to so many planetary scientists and just my own distillation of my own journey is that the more we study the other planets, the other worlds in the solar system, the more we grow to appreciate and learn more about our own. Uh, and that really echoes in your poem, where it's like, yes, this is fascinating, this journey out to this icy world in the cold blackness of space. But, you know, there are mysteries here, too. And, you, you know, you, you evoke the whale song, which, you know, now that I know you were in Maui, that totally makes sense. Yeah, you know, I think that in speaking to some of the incredible scientists um, that are working on the Europa Clipper mission, um, it's just an extraordinary team, all of them. And, you know, they will be the first to tell you that they know that the Earth is the best planet. 
And um, that was that was something, you know, I think when we think about space and exploration, we often think about going elsewhere in order to escape. But I think it's much more about going elsewhere in order to turn inward and learn more about who we are and who we are in relationship to the universe. Yes, when you look back at that first uh, image from Apollo 8 of the Earthrise taken on uh, December 24th, 1968, it was kind of like this consciousness-changing moment where, okay, yeah, we went out to the moon, which was pretty cool, but what we really learned was to look back at the Earth. Exactly. I think that's so well put. And I think it's always about, you know, returning to what matters here and now, even as we learn more and more about the sort of the context that we exist within. I'm wondering what kind of reactions have you gotten from scientists and other people to your poem? You know, it was really wonderful. On June 1st of this year, I was able to um, reveal the poem at the Library of Congress. Um, dear friend Rob Casper, who's the head of the literature division there, put together an event with um, representatives from NASA and Dr. Carla Hayden, and we were on stage talking about the mission. And before the discussion, I read the poem. And it was such an interesting experience because the crowd, yes, there were poetry lovers there, but there were so many members of the Europa Clipper mission in the audience. And there were just a lot of people who were interested in science and space in general. And to see those two worlds collide has been really wondrous to me, to recognize where poetry and science intersect, where art and science meet. And I think it really is about curiosity and mystery, making space for mystery. And so I was, I have felt really supported and um, the way that they have received the poem has been very moving to me. Yeah, one of the things that um, I, it dawned on me while I was listening to you read it uh, was I just thought of Carl Sagan, and I thought, you know, if Carl were around today, he would love this poem. Oh, that means so much to me. In fact, one of the um, scientists on the mission, I believe it's the chief scientist on the mission, has uh, studied with Carl Sagan. And when I was there visiting the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, I was able to see um, the golden record and we spoke a lot about mm -hmm. um, the golden record and of course um, the Voyager and Carl Sagan's impact on NASA. And of course, Voyager flew by Europa. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ada Limon, thank you for first writing this poem and for, for not saying no to Blue Dot. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. I really appreciate it. It was really fun to talk to you. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me and for hosting me. Thanks again to our guests, NASA JPL planetary scientist Jennifer Scully, Europa Clipper engineer David Levine, and the Poet Laureate of the United States, Ada Limon. You can learn more about the Europa Clipper mission at europa.nasa.gov. 
Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Our theme music, Big Wave Dave, is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot.